You are listening to Primal Radio, the podcast dedicated to combat sports, martial arts, self-defense, and the warrior mindset. And here are your hosts from Hamilton, New Jersey, Jim McCann, and London, England, Tom McGrath. Primal Radio, we are back. What's up, Tommy? Yeah, I'm good, man. I almost missed the show today. I came back from the gym, had a little sleep. (laughs) And then woke up to a missed call. Oh, my, my fault. No time zone issues, just Tom issues. Just Tom issues. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right, man. Look, let's uh, let's kill me. I'm busy as shit. Busy day. Had a lot of fighters, a lot of bullshit going on. How many rounds did I spar today? I rolled for an hour, and I probably sparred 30 rounds after that. Boxing, kickboxing, or wrestling? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Hey, here's the deal. I got punched a lot in the face today. <laughs> but my face was built for this shit. I think it probably was. It was. It's, it's a big myth. You're not getting too old for it yet. I try to quit, but it keeps calling me back. It's like a drug. You know, can we spar? I'm working with them. I'm working with them. You know, then they go crazy and fucking punch me in the face. I'll introduce this week's guest. Yeah. Surprisingly, we have quite a big following in Scandinavia. Hawk says that we should call this show Primal Radio International to represent the fact that I'm in the UK, you're in America, and we've had guests from all over the world. We have, all over the world. So we have a strong following in the country where this week's guest is based, Sweden. I met this week's guest at one of his seminars at Omar Ali Grant's CMS Academy in North London. Uh, He was teaching a a two-day seminar. Day one was all like jurus, which are sort of katas, but Malaysian equivalent. And day two is like loads of knife work. And me and my friend Len Walgren, who's also Swedish but lives in the UK, we really enjoyed this week's guest material, thought it was very relevant. It was excellent. So this week's guest is Bjorn Rugstat, and I may have pronounced that wrong, but I'm sure he'll correct me. He's Norwegian but lives in Sweden. The seminar that I went to was billed as Viking Salat, but it's Malaysian Salat. He's a proper Viking (laughs) warrior, like does a lot of the outdoorsy stuff. I know, um, it's awesome. So, uh, welcome to the show, Bjorn. Yeah, thank you, thank you. It's great yeah. to be here. <laughs> I've had in mind for some time to get you on the show. You did, we've talked about oh. it. Yeah, I think you're a good fit, and I did really enjoy your material. You listen to the show, right? Yeah, I do. It's, it's really funny. I've had you in my Facebook feed for a while, and I re- saw the like primal radio, and I was like, thinking, yeah, maybe I should give it a listen one day. And you know how things go. <laughs> You, you have the idea, but you never get around to it. The day, the very day I start listening to it, you send me a message asking if I want to be on the show. <laughs> yeah, that's the world. If you listen to the show, that's what Thomas, that's so great. I became friends on Facebook with, with Tom after the seminar. I just had a, a drive from, I live in very rural Sweden. I live in Gotland. It's an island 100 kilometers into the Baltic Sea. Um, Holy shit. Like, yeah. How the fuck do you end up there? <laughs> I mean, question. how does that happen? Well, it, it's a long story. But anyway, well, I, I had a long drive to get to Norway, where I'm currently at. So what do you do? Well, you listen to Primal Radio. <laughs> <laughs> so Kept you awake, hopefully. Didn't knock you out, you know? So you've had your um, kind of summer camp for your guys this weekend, right? Yeah, but it was not me teaching. Oh, interesting. You get your senior guys to teach or? No, I had my instructor. He lives here in Norway. Right. Okay. Very interesting. How did you end up moving from Norway to Sweden? 
essentially I moved to study to become a chiropractor. Really? So, so that was why. And also Jimmy Buharfa, which is my instructor here in Norway, he had already moved to Stockholm to become a chiropractor. So I was like moving after. So in part to also become a chiropractor, but also to continue training. <laughs> wow. Is it big over there? I mean, how the hell did you get into Malaysian martial art of all things? Actually, it was in part luck and in part choice. When I was, I did karate because Shotokan karate, because that was the only thing available basically where I was living. Sure. I started that when I was 12 because there wasn't 12 years age limit. You weren't allowed to start before you were 12. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think it was Norwegian Karate Association had this like standard, but don't arrest me on that because I don't really know. So I did this four or five years or something. And then when I was like 19 or 20, I moved to Oslo and I had the idea that I was going to study Aikido, but I didn't. I stumbled upon Jimmy Boharfa, who introduced me to Kunta and Silat, and he became my instructor then and he still is. Wow walk into the right place at the right time, I guess, right? To walk into his life. So, yeah, I was just extremely lucky at that point. And then I made the wise choice of staying. (laughs) (laughs) Did you fall in love with it right away? Or was it something that took a little bit of time? Because, I mean, it's completely different than what you were doing. Well, the thing was, at the time when I quit karate, I quit it because... Because karate helped me a lot, but it was very old school in the way that you had like the line gymnastics, what I call it, you know, everybody on the line performing, screaming, kicking in the air with a bit of that penalistic attitude. Like you come five minutes late in through the door, you take 50 push-ups, and, and right. that was great at the time. But after a while, I was like, this isn't really what I'm looking for. Did you relate to that discipline, though? Was it good for you at the time? Yeah, the first thing was my stepbrother, my big brother, he he was doing it. So, of course, you know, you always look up to your big brother. So I wanted to train karate because he did it. It actually really helped me in the strangest of ways. I was examined for dyslexia. I don't have dyslexia. I read perfectly. I did then. The only thing was I was formulating letters, like, all over the place. Started doing karate, and it was fixed. Oh, it just got you focused and you were able to handle that? Yeah. Wow, yeah. I've never heard of that. But actually, I read a little bit about, there is some studies suggesting that, you know, coordination-based training uh-huh. right. can improve other coordination problems, which this obviously also was. Sure. Did it make school yeah. difficult? Yeah, partly. You know, I, I was not the easiest kid in the class, probably. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. <laughs> It's interesting that a close friend of mine who I met up with last weekend is dyslexic. And we found out when we were at university that you're four times more likely to become a millionaire if you're dyslexic. I know you were saying you're not actually dyslexic, but... And and he's not exactly a millionaire. (laughs) What was interesting about this study is what they were saying is like a dyslexic person's understanding of risk is lower than someone without dyslexia. Therefore, because they don't see the risk, the inherent risk in things, they're more likely to see the opportunities and therefore they're they're more likely to become millionaires because they focus on the positive outcome rather than the negatives, which most of us are predisposed to doing. I found that very interesting anyway. That is interesting. So so, So now I wish you make me want to have dyslexia. (laughs) 
That's funny. And also, anyway, I met Jimmy through a friend, and I wound up training with him. And this was a system called Imua Shantung Kuntao. Now, the thing is, his take on this was very pragmatic, and he had been taught from a guy called Taisifu Armando Soto, who was the lineage holder of that system. He was a chiropractor, there you go, uh, living in Norway. He's uh, Mexican-American. Is everyone in Norway a chiropractor? No. <laughs> that is a good question, Tom. I mean, everyone who studied this system is a chiropractor. Yeah, it's remarkable. There it are lots in the system, yeah, yeah, there is. So anyway, the point is that I start training with Jimmy and the Taisi Formando had basically, actually he had retired from teaching. But anyway, Jimmy had pestered him into teaching him and he had basically got the, the material through, through training with him. And what we did was very pragmatic. It was very like hands-on. And then after about one and a half years, Jimmy moves from Oslo. By that time, we were a proper group. We're kind of like, shit, what do we do? And then Taisi Formando realizes that, all right, there's a proper group. I'm kind of have to teach these guys anyways. So we became direct students under him. And this changed our training a lot because the thing is, to give you a little bit of context here, Imoa Shantung Kuntal is a system made by a guy called Otto van der Groen. Otto van der Groen was a, a Dutch Indo of Chinese descent. He's from Bandung originally, but he emigrated to the United States. He joined the army. He came from a Kuntal and Silap family. His father was a Kuntal player, but there was like Chikalung Chimande, Serak, Serak, same thing in his family and, and close uh, around him when he grew up. So when he joins the, the military, and I mean, Tessifoto was like, he was a bona fide warrior. This guy, he was a special forces, did uh, three tours of duty in Vietnam, wounded four times, wow. you know, military guy. Yeah, Wow. I, I don't use that word lightly. So I think he, the, the label fits. So anyway, he was stationed in Korea and what he realized was that the local arts in Indonesia were dying because parents didn't send their children to train Silat or, or for that matter, Kuntau. They sent their children to train, you know, other arts because at the time Silat and Kuntau wasn't really considered nice or good. It was like low class or, or something like this. So what he sees is when he's stationed in Korea, he gets exposed to Hapkido or what becomes like Taekwondo. Actually, we have pictures of him with, like, General Choi. And he sees the way they have the pristine uniforms, the nice, clean schools, all that. Uh, and he basically realized, all right, this is the way to promote your martial art. So yeah. he's very influenced by that. Moves back to America, takes over some schools uh, by converting the instructors, basically. And Taisi Armando was a student of one of these instructors. Long story, Sifuoto dies in 79. Armando is relatively young at the time. He completes his training with the father of Otto van der a guy called Edgar van der or sometimes referred to as Lee Guy. When he takes over the, the group and we become direct students under him, he had made this promise or pledge to the father, Edgar van der that he would continue teaching his son's system unchanged. And Otto was a freak of nature beyond just being a, a warrior. So he was like a 
extremely physical guy and he loved the kicking and stuff. Now, this was the 60s and 70s. High kicking was the shit, you know? So the system was extremely physically demanding and lots of very advanced kicking. In fact, I've never seen any kicking system as advanced as that. But it also had all the close combat elements that you associate with silats, right? So he kind of changed the training very much to become that. And that was great for us at that time. We were like a group of, I think, seven guys, five guys and and two girls. And we were like living together, training together, 25, 30 hours a week we spent in dojo. And it was a fantastic time. You didn't dare miss class. Because if you missed class, if you were like sick for a week, when you came back, you get your ass kicked. Not because somebody wanted to punish you or anything, but everybody was growing so fast that the people you used to beat up, yeah. they beat you if you were gone for, for a week. <laughs> so that was amazing. But it was also extremely physically demanding, and my knee just gave up after a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I really couldn't do it that way. I recontact with Jimmy, and Jimmy goes moves to Stockholm to become a chiropractor. I move after to, to study, and I continue training with him. And the thing is, in Moorshanton Kuntau, there is a relationship between the Fannegroen and the, the Tuars, which you, of course, have heard of. Sure. Willem, the Tuars, Paul, the Tuars, all these guys. So they go back a long way, and, you know, the Dutch Indo community was probably not that big. And if you also did, like, Kuntau and Silat, you'd know each other. So we were introduced to Willem de Tuars pretty early on, I mean, I think a year after training. And Willem de Tuars came and held seminars annually in Scandinavia. And I think he had his last seminar like a year ago or something. So we always attended that. But the thing was that when we kind of let go of the legs or the high kicking, we got a hole in our training that we needed to fill. Because this is true, I think, of of a lot of Kunta and Silat is that it's it works great, but it, it's very dependent upon entering on one very dedicated strike. You can you understand what I mean? I do, of course, yeah. Yeah, we have kind of equivalent stuff in JKD. And that's great, but if you meet a, a boxer that's light on his feet, that's a bit of a dodgy play, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. And so where Imua solved that basically by using the legs, you know you you can do things anymore with your legs that similar to what you do with your hands in tight in, in Wing Chun. So it's like very like sticky legs, right? Yeah. But we kind of didn't have that up. We needed to fill the void with hands. And then Jimmy and his little brother and a few other guys go to start going to Indonesia and Malaysia looking for the clues. I was stuck in universities, so I couldn't go. And and they come across Buapukul, which is um, a Malay striking art, uh, similar to if you heard about Pukulam, or it's also sometimes known as Malay boxing, uh, or it could be equivalent to what you call Panantukan, like dirty boxing. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a Malay striking art, which only doesn't include strikes, but, you know, elbows, headbutts, knees, legs, everything. So... We came across that initially to fill that void, but then what we realized was that, first of all, this system was like really, really great. And also it was structured in a way that made both learning and teaching 
extremely easy. A lot of Chinese and Indonesian martial arts is basically a huge chaos. And if you make something good of it, you're good. That, that's on you, right? But here was like extremely pedagogic and analytic and really, really intelligent. And they're so open-minded. I mean, these guys are like, don't subtract anything, but add what you want. Oh, great. So what we got today is Buapuku with a lot of Kuntao influences from us. And our teachers are like, yeah, of course. Why would you take away something that works? They have this saying called like, Akal Budi Bichara. It means like, as long as it follows your common sense. Like that. That's great. No, absolutely. I draw some comparisons with the Filipino martial arts. I went to the Philippines last year and yep. a lot of people in the Philippines didn't know about Arnis, Eskrima and, and Kali. And you would have thought it being the national martial art, you would have thought everyone would know. And what that came down to is the parents saw the value in the Korean Japanese martial arts through the discipline and the values it would give to their kids, the structure, the belt systems, all those kind of things. Right. Therefore, the more hardcore, brutal stick fighting stuff was not being taught because the parents weren't buying into it. They weren't trying to create warriors. They were trying to create good people. And I think that seems yeah. to be the same with what's going on with Malaysia and Indonesia. Did you find, or your instructors, did they find it hard to find the true essence and track down these instructors that really knew their stuff over there? For me, I was lucky. By the time I went to Malaysia, the contact was already established. But the thing is, there today, there is something called Peraguan, which mean, essentially means a club. So Club Silat, which is what is taught in the schools today, is the national, is, is Silat is the national martial art of both Indonesia and Malaysia. So that oh, Silat that. today is really well known. But what is taught is the sport side of Silat, which if you've looked at it, it has like two elements. There's like, form competitions and there's sparring competitions that kind of look like something akin to taekwondo competitions with sweeps that isn't the silat i'm interested in there's nothing wrong with it that's just not what i'm interested this is in not your cup of tea. yeah sure yeah i mean with, with the filipino stuff they've created like the wecaf tournaments which are kind of a similar thing so it's like so it, so it can get yeah. taught in the schools yeah but yeah, your, your stuff's a lot more hardcore. You spend a lot of time doing the, the jurus. The systems I study, we don't do any katas. But yours are really cool and interesting. A lot of systems don't do katas. Talk to us about the value of those and where they kind of originate from. The jurus, which are the hand forms, and then we have what's called liam, which are footwork forms. This is similar to what you'd uh, see in others in Indonesia. This is often referred to as lankas, footwork forms. The idea is that you automatize motorical programs. By doing the jurus and, and the piam, you're getting the motorical programs that you directly use unchanged in the fighting. It's like training kicks on its own, but you do it in a context because all movement is integrated. So mm -hmm. that's basically what it is, and it's very compact and small. Like Lian Ilham, which is the Buapukul system we follow, is consists of five hand forms, which are all really, really short, and four footwork forms of one is a low kicking form. That's it. 
And aside from that, you have so a few transitional techniques, a few drills, uh, some guiding principles, and you have applications on those, and they are direct. So actually, I'm in the position where I hate to be saying this. I really hate myself because doing doing karate, I hated katas. Right. So preferred, you know, the sparring and stuff. But in the position where I tell my students, you know, if if you can't make it work in sparring, you have to do the jurors. Right. <laughs> right. I think they absolutely do have a place in your training, though. I haven't done official katas or jurus or anything like that in years. I, I kind of make up shit as I'm shadow boxing, you know, and it could yeah. be a particular combination or a set of moves, whatever I'm doing as I'm mindfully moving around. And I find it completely applicable to training because not every bit of training can be contact. I get punched in the face a lot that I can't do that every day. So tomorrow, maybe I shadow box and I come up with a combination of moves that I enjoy and I'll repeat them and try to tighten it up and try to visualize uh, what I'm doing, so I think they're extremely beneficial. I think it, they've just taken a bad rat. Since there are so few forms, the forms all teach you a specific concept. So in the like the second juris, you learn how to apply elbows and use your the same hand to strike multiple strikes with. So it's very easy to fall into the combination of left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. Sure. Right? So jurors number two would teach you both to apply elbows and also to strike twice with your hand or three times with your hand, with the same hand, and how to use that in a beneficial way and how to do that and at the same time follow the basic principles like covering. They have an idea called safety first. You should always like clear away your opponent's weapons before you start hitting him hard. If I compare that to the kind of the FMA stuff, when we're doing stuff, it's with the unseeing eye, it just looks like we're performing a pattern and learning yep. effectively how to dance. But every drill yep. that you do, there's a purpose behind it. And without that why, you're missing the picture. Was there a, a driver behind you needing to fight? Was it a rough upbringing or did you ever do any security or police work or anything like that? So I actually transitioned the other way around. I got recruited into bouncing and law enforcement because I had the background I did. I was a bouncer slash law enforcement for 20 years. Wow. When I say law enforcement, the reason I use that word is because in Sweden, after I continued, I was bouncing already in Norway, but when I was moved to Sweden, like in, in England, you have, like, have to have like a license to be a, a bouncer, right? That's right, yeah. So it's the same thing in Sweden, but that essentially, that license makes you uh, law enforcement because you actually uphold certain laws and have the right to, to make arrests and do things that, you know, your average civilian cannot. And you're also allowed to use and carry handcuffs, expandable batons, even firearms in very specific cases. I never did, but it's essentially in there. I find an interesting dynamic in Scandinavia is you've got one of the most liberal countries on earth, very left wing. <laughs> the other dynamic is a history of true warriors, Vikings that ran the world. There's still, I think, a strong belief in Valhalla. I don't know whether you believe in those things. But um, how, how do you find that dynamic plays out over there? Do you see a lot of trouble? Uh, well, that was many questions in one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm bad for that. I'll take the last question first. Valhalla, well, seriously, Sweden is the most secular country 
at least one of the most secular countries in the world. Basically, people don't believe in, in any religion. The Valhalla thing, the, you might find, you know, some neo-pagans or something, but basically that's gone long time ago. I mean, there was state religion enforced Christianity for like a thousand years, so that's not really an issue. Whereas there is, of course, both gang-related violence, there is a lot of illegal gun problems, you have, you know, hand grenades, lots of that stuff in Sweden, but it is located to specific areas and or specific social environments. That's not to say violence does not exist anywhere else, because of course it does, it exists just like in any society. But by and large, most of the gang-related violence is between gangs. So unless you're part of a gang, you kind of aren't that exposed to it. I chose to put myself in lines of work where I worked, as I said, as a bouncer, I even worked in the psychiatric intensive care unit. So I put myself consciously in places where violence was uh, rampant. But many people in Sweden live their entire lives never experiencing violence at all. And that might not be entirely healthy either, but, but that's that's another. <laughs> Can I expand on the grenade bit? Because what Len told me is there's like some, there was something like 150 grenade attacks at one time. Yep. And, yeah. Which is remarkable. Yep. I mean, if that was in America, that would like be making national news a lot. And uh, rapes have gone through the roof as well. All right. This is a huge topic. And the, the problem is it's very hard to have a conversation about this because the political environment is extremely polarized. And I think this is the case in, in many countries that the, the political environment is very polarized. But the, the real thing is if you sit down with, a, with your average Swede, you'll find that they most of them actually agree a lot upon many, most of the problems. It's just that the political parties on all sides are peddling ideology and trying to win petty points. And the media is ramping it up, not to mention fucking Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's where I get all my news from. <laughs> so let's just take the hand grenades and the illegal gun problematics. It's like the solutions that are presented by politicians is meaningless. It's trying to symbolize that you're doing something, but you're doing nothing. Several of the political parties suggest to limit access to high capacity magazines and stuff like this. If you look at the statistics, less than 1% of legally owned firearms in Sweden are used in violent gun crime. I'm not a gun person myself. I don't own guns. I don't shoot guns. But regardless of that, that's obviously not the problem. So doing that is like wasting time, energy, and money on something which actually does nothing. Similarly, there are obviously connected problems with immigration and some of the crime. But, you know, some of the, you know, if you go to the to the other side, like the right-wing parties, especially the far right-wing parties, would say, oh, it's because of Islam. Yeah, we have to limit the, um, we have to forbid the, the use of, of the, the niqab, the like full covering uh, uh, veil. First of all, there's 10 million inhabitants in Sweden. And the last statistics I read was like 200 women are using this. And I promise you, none of them are doing violent crime. So that's not solving anything. 
the reason that immigration is connected to violent crime, uh, the, the two most obvious reasons, are, there will be more, of course, things are complex, but the two most obvious reasons is who is committing violent crime statistically? Young men. Who are the majority of refugees? Young men. So by just increasing the amount of young men in your society, you will inevitably increase violent crime because you just have more of those people. The same is like you bring somebody from a country that has, you know, no literacy or very low literacy, poor education, basically a dysfunctional society. You bring them to Sweden where you can't even get a job at McDonald's if you didn't finish gymnasium. Gymnasium is like the step before university, right? Okay. <laughs> so what are they going to do? If you have finished gymnasium, I think the statistic shows on average it takes an an immigrant from outside of Europe about seven years to get a job. So imagine you're coming from, you know, rural Afghanistan and you're illiterate and you're 18. At what time will you land a job? Yeah. That does not improve your chances of not falling into violent crime. Of course. So there's a lot of these things, but people are instead making like petty points about things that are completely irrelevant to the issue at hand. But it serves the narrative they want to describe. It serves their political ideology. And you instead, you get fights about ideology instead of trying right. to solve the, the hand. Solve the problem, yeah. You're big into the outdoor survival stuff, right? Do you think that sort of complements yeah. your martial arts? Is there a natural sort of, do the two things fit together well? Yeah, I think they do in several ways, both. I mean... From the health perspective, I think it does. Both things really clear my head. If I'm like stressed out, either working out or going to, to the outdoors completely clears my head. At the same time, it's a way of being physically active and physically in contact with the environment. Like I, I have a young son, he's like four years old. Soon I'm going to give him his first knife. Not because, you know, people are like, oh, you can't give a child a knife. Well, if he doesn't learn to handle it when he's like five or six, he doesn't learn to respect it. I think it's the same with handguns, right? In, in America. Yeah, yeah back them... in the day, by the way, back in the 50s and show and tell in the 60s, you could bring your gun to school for show and tell. That's <laughs> not dead fucking serious. Nowadays, no way. Far, everybody had a gun that was far less issues. So, you know, yeah. that's a whole other argument. But it's true. You bring, Let's bring the yeah. shotgun to school. <laughs> so I think it's healthy to deal with these things that are real. Right. So in that for the knife and for the art and all that stuff, absolutely. Yeah. It, there's not a weekend that goes by, I think, that I don't see a pictures or a video of you and your son out in the wilderness of Scandinavia doing survival stuff. It's great. It's great to see. You've obviously got a close bond. It's something you can give your child that is, first of all, completely free, regardless of his future economic situation. Right. It's something I can do with him. He enjoys it. Yeah, it's f fantastic. I hope to get him into martial arts one day, but I think it's a few years down the line before we get there. <laughs> Sometimes you just go hiking, you go hunting, you go fishing. Is there one thing you enjoy more or just being outside? I, I prefer hiking. I do like fishing. I, I don't hunt because I don't have a gun. I have played with the idea. It's just to get a gun in Sweden, you have to get a hunter's license. And that's 
yeah, it's like time and money. I just right. haven't it's a big pain in the ass. Yeah. And I love just hiking. Just being outdoors is. So do I. Is, they, yeah. like I don't. I used to hunt. I don't hunt anymore. I live in New Jersey, which is, you know, there's a lot enough hunters, and it's just a big pain in the ass to go through that whole process. I would rather just go walk through the woods. Quite honestly, see the deer, see the wildlife. You know. You go hunting in New Jersey. There's not wildlife you're hunting. <laughs> <laughs> there's a couple of things. I don't hunt anymore, but there's, believe it or not, there's a lot of land to hunt on out here. I know it's shocking, but it's true. But I don't yeah. do it anyway. All, all my buddies do. Speaking of knives, Bjorn, so I spent a day of you doing knife work. You know, talk us through your approach to knife work and pr how you pressure test that stuff. Basically, the core of the knife is sparring. One of the things that really changed my training was the nook knives. So basically, it's, it's a training knife that's developed that, that allows you to do full contact sparring with basically a gum shield. Yeah, I bought it's six of them after your seminar, actually. <laughs> yeah. You can do basically everything you can do with an aluminum trainer, for example, except you won't sustain permanent injuries. It's not the flappy, flappy rubber things. It's well, like it's stiff. And it does hurt to get hit, which I think is good, but you don't get injured. You don't go to hospital injured. It might get a blue eye or pop rib, but I mean, spar empty hand and you do the same, right? Right, yeah. of course. So I think you're right, because if people lose respect for that blade when you're sparring, if you wet me on the wrist or the neck with it, I'm going, holy, I don't want to feel that. So I'll respect yeah. that. If, if it's a sponge, I'm not so worried, you know? Exactly. And, and this was just a product that was developed by a guy called Randy Hodges and his wife, which is, which is called Nook, which is Nook Hodges. So they're students of uh, Tom Sotis, uh, the Amok. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know those guys. We're going to have Matt, another Swedish guy Matt from Matt Combatives. Yeah, yeah, I know him. Yeah, he's a good guy. So those changed a lot. And then I got introduced to knife sparring by a guy called Carl Johan. He's, uh, he, he's uh, originally a Dose Paris uh, guy, I think, but he's done lots of uh, other stuff. And this completely changed the way I looked at knife because before that, the first thing that happened was that I thought I knew something about knives and then we started sparring and I thought, I don't know anything about knives. <laughs> because... <laughs> The stuff you did at the, at the trapping range, the hubad, all that stuff, like, that doesn't work, was my first experience. But then slowly, <laughs> as I started sparring more and more and, and doing more, I was like, yeah, it does work. It's just, it was taught out of context. Yeah. It was a drill to teach you something, but I never went to the extent that I pressure tested it in sparring. So I didn't understand where it was supposed to be. And that's one of the things that I, I kind of have a bit of an issue with is like, it has a tendency to become its own thing. Like, like some people do cheese out as an end in itself. It's a drill made to teach you something and it's a great drill. The, the most of the time you spend with a knife, if you're sparring, you'll spend at the reach range where you can't touch your opponent and he can't touch you because that's where you're safe. And right. if it's a real knife, you're going to be wanting to be where he can't touch you and you can't touch him no as doubt. much time as possible. So the time you spend at the trapping range is like 5% of the fight. Whereas, at least previously, for me, the amount of training I spent was like 95% at that yeah. range. 
in any weapon spying. You have to learn how to control the distance to find how to enter safely and how to exit safely, how to get from the safe distance in, do your thing, land your hits and get out, preferably at least without sustaining real proper injuries that would kill you. Because you can't be a tough guy with a knife. If you're doing boxing, you can take one to give one. But that's, that's not right. really recommended with a knife. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, there's, there's uh, some statistics from the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. They have a statistic saying that in a bell curve, in a large population group, you will see that on average, people die after six, six uh, knife stabs to the central body. Of course, you can die from one attack and you can survive 40, but on average, sure. that's on the average. Sounds about right. You have to be really careful about the amounts of hits you take and really cover yourself well. And also another thing that really, almost all my main attacks are thrusts. I do cuts, but I do them as either, because cuts cover lines, right? You can enter and exit using cuts, and I will cut if there's an opening for a cut, of course, cut. But my main attack, I will do thrusts because, uh, like where I live, I live in Scandinavia, it's cold. Like six months of the year, I'll be wearing relatively heavy clothing. And the thing is, fabric is actually quite a good protectant against cuts. There, sure there's is. videos of people who tested this, and there are accounts that there's like the, the charge of the light brigade. You're a British man. You probably heard about the light yeah. brigade, right? <laughs> Maybe not. Well, anyway, it was Crimean Wars, yeah. 19th century. British officers actually complained that their sabers couldn't cut through Russian winter coats. I didn't know wow. that. That says something about the protective abilities of thick fabrics. If you're doing lots of cuts, you're ruining my winter jacket. And I'll be really cross with you, but <laughs> you know, there's uh, no guarantee you're going to be hurting me. Pretty important knowing where your environment. If you're look, if you're in uh, the jungle in Malaysia, it's different than uh, Sweden. A lot of the the traditional knives in Southeast Asia are quite big, and right. the amount of clothing they wear is relatively little. And if you look at modern you know, most modern knife fighting, they're dealing with folders. You're probably going to wear like denims at least most of the year. So that kind of changes things quite a lot. Sure. Also in, in relation to this power in, in actually thrusting, not just thrusting, but thrusting hard. Because if I thrust you hard, you're going to have to block me hard. And if I force you to block me hard, you're going to have to spend time, energy, and attention on blocking me hard. Because if you block me soft, and I hit you hard with a thrust, you're not going to block me. Right. So that kind of also changes some of the mentality. And back to the distance things, anatomically speaking, there's a single point where you have the maximum reach. And that's if you put out your arm at the height of your shoulder, that's where you have maximum reach, Agreed. right? So right. if you control that distance, all thrusts, regardless of, of how you do them, will culminate at one maximum point. So if you control the distance, you have to worry about if I'm going high or low. And that makes the fight a lot less chaotic. Whereas if I'm in close with you, there's like 360 degrees you can attack me from. And that's a nightmare to deal with. It is. Do, yeah. do you ever start your sparring off like uh, we call it in the clutch itself? Like I have your wrist, you have my wrist. 
or in sort of a bear hug or with the weapons not drawn? Do you go to kind of situational stuff too and start the fight from there? I do. Sometimes we do like introduce like scenarios like this, but right. the majority of the time I spend on the what you would call like dueling, if you like, right? But we do like do multiple person scenarios, close up, and in the Kunta, there's actually you're taught ways to draw your knife mid fight. Because oh, uh -huh. if I have a knife and I show it to you, the chances of you def making a successful defense is a lot bigger than if you didn't know when I had a knife. Yeah. That's why you sometimes see these weird things that they're touching strange parts of their body. That didn't come out right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, funny. but you, you see something that looks meaningless, and you'll right. see in, in a lot of the scene, like, you'll see them like worrying about high and low lines in empty hand. Whereas if you're you know that is only boxing and you're only going to hit, you don't have to worry about that because most of the hits are going to go to the upper body. And as I said, you can take one, but you're really worried about that the moment there's weapons and you want to cover high and low lines, right? What does the future hold for you? What do you What do you plan on doing? I don't teach professionally. What we do is we're not really looking for students. We're looking for friends, friends right. to her, <laughs> <laughs> to share, <laughs> to, <beat> to share. <laughs> I don't really do a lot of seminars. I will go and help start groups. So I do that. I'm a, and I've also kind of ventured into the historical European martial arts. So I do a little bit of longsword fencing. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, I, I really love that stuff. It, it's really interesting. It is. Um, back in the day, I, I hated it. It was just bullshit. But something happened last like 10 years or something. And it <laughs> became something. Well, I a couple of years ago, I went out to this thing called Combat Con in Las yeah. Vegas. It's it's a historical European martial art conference, gigantic. I got invited to go out there and teach, and I was doing modern hand-to-hand -hand knife stuff, you know. And you had mm -hmm. all these guys from all different disciplines, from Italy to wherever it was, teaching their different arts and whatever. It was quite fascinating. Guys would be walking through the casino with giant swords and suits of armor <laughs> yeah no, it was totally crazy i was kind of a, an anomaly there because i'm not really a perfect fit for it but i had quite a few people show up it was quite interesting i learned a lot of interesting things there and met a lot of interesting people they're extraordinarily passionate about it that's for yeah. sure it, it, and it looked like a lot of fun i would definitely go to something like that again you know and cool. they have this this really cool thing about Doing proper research, I mean, historical research. Right, uh, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, and I've tried to implement that in my Southeast Asian martial arts. Uh, like, you know, a lot, like it is in most traditional Asian arts, a lot of it is like verbal tradition and it's riddled with folklore. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, like, one of the things I often say is like, where are the shields in Filipino martial arts? Look at pictures from the 19th century of Filipino warriors. There's shields everywhere. And where are they today? Good question. Yeah. I never even thought to ask that one. <laughs> it never occurred to me. Yeah, they went somewhere. It's fascinating. It's like, and, and what impact did that have on the development of Filipino martial arts into what it is today? I don't know, but it certainly is worth looking into. What? No, absolutely, absolutely. So if people need to get a hold of you, Bjorn, how do they get a hold of you? 
They're interested well, in what you do on your group. We have a Facebook page. I used to have a homepage, but I shut it down. Just cost money and, and attention. I didn't really well, give I... anything. So right now I'm I'm on Facebook, but I also we have like a, a Facebook group called Silat Lian Ilham Sweden. You can find me there. All right, Bjorn. Hey, thank you, Tom. Do you have anything to wrap up with? No, me? just for, for our Swedish fans or our, our Scandinavian fans or anyone else, you know, listen to our show. We've, this will be our seventy seventh episode. We're growing. Woo, we try to do one every week. We interview people from all around the world. I know all Scandinavians have excellent English, so uh, there's no excuses not to listen to the show. <laughs> All right, another great episode of Primal Radio. Peace out, guys. You have been listening to Primal Radio in association with Primal Gym and Primal Promotions. Primal Radio is available on all good podcast venues. To help us grow, please subscribe, like it, share it, and leave us a great review.